So as we continue through 1 Corinthians, we're going to mainly be in chapter 4. We'll bounce around a little bit in chapter 3. And tonight, we're going to talk about servant leadership. Servant leadership. Let's read verse 1 real quick of chapter 4 just to introduce this. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, first, we've got to remember where we are here. This is Paul writing about the leaders of the church at Corinth and of the first century church in general. And there were people in the church saying, well, I'm with Paul. Well, no, 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 I'm with Peter. No, actually, I'm with Apollos. And they were separating and dividing and, and, and attaching to whoever they liked the most. And Paul is saying, let, let a man consider us, all the people listed, we're just servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. And um, to put it bluntly, through the next chapter, and hopefully I finish this in one night, we're really going to address uh, people who are spiritually too big for their britches. <laughs> a little bit of an old term there, but they bite off a little more they can chew. Uh, people who think they are more than they really are. Are And that's really what Paul is addressing through this chapter. People who have a spiritual big head. You can use whatever words you want to describe it, but this self-righteous Christian is suffering from a superiority complex. I am somehow better than those around me because... And you can list all the different reasons. And that's what Paul is addressing here in chapter 4. And not only was the first century church dealing with this, I think Christians continued and still continue to deal with this issue. Everything Paul writes was writing to Corinth, but it also applies to the church today. Now remember, uh, Paul is writing to believers To recap from last week, he's not talking about sinners. He's talking about fellow Christians. They're no longer of the world. They are no longer of the flesh. They have been saved. However, they are not living the way God's called them to. They are not in unity with their fellow Christians. They are not, um, they have rather forsaken the assembly of each other. And they are living carnally. So they are Christians that appear fleshly. But they are saved. Don't want to forget that. They have surrendered to the world's system of values and attached themselves to leaders of their time. And here's the craziest thing. The people they attached themselves to weren't bad people. It's not like, oh, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, idolize this person. You know what he's done, right? It's like, no, we're talking about Paul. <laughs> we're talking about the, the founder of the first century church, Peter, We're talking about Apollos, the man that Paul entrusted the entire church of that city with. They were following and seeking after good men, but the thing in their heart that was behind it is what led to the carnal action. Immature Christians produce divisions in the church. When the church is built on human values... And on human beings, it becomes a human system. If the church is built on human values, and fleshly values, if you want to put it that way, and on human beings, it ends up becoming a human system. 
not a spiritual system. And that system produces carnal, fleshly followers of Christ whose perceptions have become distorted and we are multiplying spiritual immaturity instead of fighting it. We produce more people just like us, living the same way, being just as carnal, just as fleshly, and we're making the problem worse, we the church as a whole. And what Paul is trying to do here is stop that rapid advancement of spiritual immaturity. He knew that if I don't stop this now, it could grow into something bigger. Um, <laughs> anytime I'm at Christmas, I'm around my family, and you can get all kinds of stories from my family. Have you ever met somebody, maybe when they tell a story about themselves, maybe of the past, they remember it a little more positively than it probably happened, Right? You know, that they're a little bit cooler, a little bit smaller, or smarter, a little bit faster. They hit just a little bit further. They did something just a little bit better than it probably really happened. And that's innocent, and that's fond memories, or however you want to put it. But that's a seed of something that's worse. And then, you know, apply it to other parts in our lives where you get into something, you know, whether it's drugs or something like that, and when you're on that, I'm invincible. Oh, I can do anything. I can sing. Like, no, you're just drunk. You didn't all of a sudden become a better singer. I'm so funny. No, they're laughing at you, not with you. You are on a drug, and I don't just mean like drug, like the drug of I'm better than I really am. And that is the drug that Corinth was on. They were in this idea that, oh, wow, aren't we so spiritual? Did you see how long we prayed after service? Oh, my gosh, we're just so godly. Did you see how many people were praying at the altar? We're just so Christian. But they were on this drug that diluted or of delusion that made them think they were more than they really are. And Paul transitions this into the main issue of the Corinthian church by introducing the concept of spirit, uh, servant leadership. Make no mistake, everyone in this room is called to be a leader. And everyone in this room is called to serve. That's the only way it works in Scripture. So the basic idea of 1 Corinthians 4 is that we are called to leadership, and leadership means to serve. There is no room for superiority. There is no room for partying. There's no room for division in order for our church to be healthy, spiritually maturing people, growing in God together each and every day. We each have to follow and we each have to lead. So how does Paul break this down? He breaks it down into kind of five points, but I don't want to call them points because then that sounds like a sermon. He calls them five actions. Like these are things you have to do. This isn't a note. This isn't a post on whatever social media platform. You have to do these things in order to be a servant leader. Let's jump back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And here Paul introduces the first action. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. 19, and we'll end this point. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. The first action is you must develop genuine humility. You have to develop humility. Paul could have been as arrogant as they came. And if you look into his early life when he was Saul, it's never a highlight that he was arrogant, but it's kind of obvious he thought he was better than the people around him. That's kind of why he killed them all. A little extreme, but still. You know, he thought his way was better. I know more. I've read the Old Testament. I follow the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I know what's right. They don't. And then he acted on it. So he tells us that we have to develop genuine humility, but it's our tendency as humans to pride ourselves on our own wisdom. (laughs) This, This pride, I think, comes mainly from our own inferiorities. The thing you're most insecure about, you know, you try to like overcompensate by you know, being brash or being hot-headed or being, you know, whatever that thing is because you're trying to hide what you really don't want people to see that, yeah, I really am not that good at this or I really don't know that much about that and I want to hide that by acting like I'm better than everybody else. We are assertive, which probably just means you have low self-esteem. You take the initiative, which probably means that by yourself you're just completely lazy. And you try to overcompensate it around other people and you come across or or you are lacking humility. I'm going to describe a person and and you'll know somebody like this. I call them intellectual amateurs. They know just enough to get in trouble. Pick your favorite thing. Hobby, sport, whatever you know quite a lot about. Whatever that may be. Social media, celebrity lives, I don't know. Whatever your thing is. And then there's those people that know just a few of the words. Like they know they know what a a cat delete is, Case. And oh I'm getting my cats deleted on my truck. And you're sitting there going, Do you even know what that means? You know, well, there was two posted up in the key last night. Did you see that? Uh Uh-huh, buddy. Yeah, sure. You know, they have the right terms and they know just enough, but they're trying to prove so desperately how much they know. And what does that really show? How much they don't know. And if they would just be quiet and listen to someone who knows what they're talking about in that subject, they might be more liked, end up learning more, be more well-rounded, but it has to start with humility. And that's what we're lacking. And essentially... You all know a person like that, I'm sure. (laughs) But that's every one of us, to some degree, in some part of our lives. You know, it might not be as obvious because you don't know what you don't know. If you knew what you didn't know, you might be considered wise. But you don't even realize what it is that you don't know. Because there's people that are like that, that, ooh, Okay, he's talking. I understand that I have absolutely no idea. I'm just going to sit here and listen. Nobody thinks that guy's dumb. Nobody thinks that guy doesn't know anything. They're just going, oh, wow, he's smart. (laughs) You should listen when this particular person is talking on this subject. 
you know, my boss knows way more about construction than me. So when he gets in one of those little tangents, I just grab a pen and a pad, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. I might grasp 20% of it, maybe, if I'm lucky. <laughs> but that's a time to be quiet. You don't put in your little note, or, yeah, when I was a kid, we, we built a shed. You don't butt in right there and like, yeah, me, me, me and my dad rebuilt a truck. You're like, no, the master mechanic is talking. You need to be quiet. But that's what our word is. You know, and whether it's here in front of a pastor or in your own private study time, you're sitting there reading through Corinthians, but you need to just be like, quit applying your own knowledge to this. Oh, yeah, but I, no, no, the master's talking. It's time to listen. The Holy Spirit is tutoring you. It's time to take notes, not try to apply your human wisdom and your human knowledge to something that it does not apply to, but we are all bound up with this lack of humility. Paul himself was an intellectual. His position in the, Jude- uh, the, the Jewish culture at the time meant he knew a lot. He had probably memorized most of the Old Testament and could tell you what we call chapter and verse. They, they didn't have chapter and verse. They had scrolls, but still. He could just go to things, and he could quote things, and he could know things. But remember back in chapter 2, he said, I choose to know nothing. So this isn't one verse I'm cherry-picking to say we should be humble. This is Paul's life that tells us we should be humble. And then he instructs us that people who are wise in today's age, in verse 18, count them as fools, and that to be truly wise, we have to put down our own wisdom and only get the wisdom we can from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how many degrees are behind your name, how many awards you have, how many things you've done, compared to Christ, your wisdom, your knowledge, your intellect is nothing but foolishness. And even Paul himself realized that all of his accomplishments were nothing compared to the salvation message of Jesus Christ. Genuine humility marks the life of a servant leader. We have to be humble. Where does he go from here? Now he starts applying these actions. What are some of the things we can do? Let's go back to, um, let's go to verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. actually don't have it written where it is. Next verse. I'm looking forward to, you might be able to help me find this, Ed. I have it quoted right here. So let no one boast about human leaders is the beginning of the verse. I can read it from here. I just didn't write which verse that was. Chapter four, I thought it was verse two, but it's not. I'm going to read it and we'll find out which verse it was. It says, So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's the other name for Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or future, all belong to you. And I think this is the end of 30, isn't it? Yeah, this is the last two verses of chapter 3. I had this from last week. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's ministries, mysteries. And then he says that, repeats it again in verse 4, chapter 1. So the point here is, do not boast about who you know. 
it doesn't mean anything. And sadly, <laughs> this is probably one of the worst things in the church today. It is almost guaranteed if you go visit another church, or, or rather a guest pastor visits a church or, or something like that, the first thing they're going to talk about is the people they know. Because that's all that matters in our world today. Right? Go to college, for example. You, you think you can pass a class if you're smart? No. That's not it. Sorry. Kylie, what's some of the things in the syllabus? Participation, 15%. Uh, you know, attendance, 10 to 15%. And really, if, if you can't get along with the professor, you're not going to get an A. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It depends on who you know. Think about in the entertainment industry. How many phenomenal musicians and actors and actresses there are on this planet, yet only a few select ones stick out. It's because it's who you know, right? And that's true even for us in our everyday lives away from Hollywood and Nashville, you know, trying to get a job. It's more about who you know, unfortunately. But we can't apply that to our lives as Christians. There is this line that often gets crossed especially when traveling ministers visit, that goes from, let, let me tell you who I am, and maybe you know some of these people, so you can form an opinion on me based on who I associate with. That's fine. You know, I, I would like that introduction if I was going to listen to a minister. Like, like you know, oh, I'm, I'm affiliated with uh, Harvest Church in Stark. Oh, okay, cool. Or, or I know Christ Central over in Lake City. Pastor Lonnie, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. But then they walk up on stage and, Oh, I just got off of a flight from Australia with Bishop this guy. And, you know, right before that, we came through Chicago with Elder this guy. And it just, they crossed that line into boasting about who they know. And you'd think that in the first century church, when you're affiliating with Paul and Peter, maybe you could boast about who you know, right? You know, remember Peter? Yeah, he planted me here. Remember Paul? Yeah, he said I could preach here. If anyone could have used that and it not sounded arrogant, it might have been someone in the first century church. But Paul cuts them right off and says, let no one boast about human leaders, but it is our human nature and it is our culture today to attach ourselves to idols. It is our tendency to attach ourselves to idols. We get wrapped up in leaders around us or people that are doing great things around us and we end up affiliating more with them than what they're saying, right? It's not just church. It happens in politics, music, culture, whatever you want. You're more affiliated with that person than anything they're saying. In the church world, it's the megachurch pastors, the Stephen Furtick's and the Joel Osteen's and stuff like that where it's like, Okay, he's a pastor, he's a man of God, he preaches the word, maybe, maybe not, I'm not going to judge him, but to somehow hold him up as like the guiding beacon of the church today is like so against what Paul, the literal guiding beacon of the original church, even he didn't want anything to do with it. And he, depending on which part of Acts you want to go to, were saving people by the tens of thousands at a time. It wasn't a room full of 25 Sometimes it was, if, if it was a certain kind of teaching. But they were talking about, and 4,000 people today, and 5,000 people tomorrow. You know, those are modern-day numbers. And he was achieving them. And he said, I, I am meaningless. 
I'm a gardener. <laughs> I'm a construction worker. And in this verse, he talks about, I'm a servant and a steward. And we're about to get to that. Are we about to get to that? We're not about to get to that. That's on the next page. <laughs> he is a servant and a steward. I got caught up. I got caught up. Sorry. That celebrity thing. Mm. We attach ourselves to people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Attaching yourself to someone isn't necessarily bad. We all have this desire to affiliate with. Christ himself called disciples and said that they had a special place in his ministry because he could hand tutor them and mold them and then send them to grow more people. So it's not like the concept of having a mentor is somehow wrong. It's where we as humans take it when we turn them into, from mentors into idols. And then our identity becomes wrapped up in the leader, not the message of the leader. We start following the creation and not the creator. So the first word Paul describes this as is servant. Let's go back to, I think it's verse 1 of chapter 4. We are servants of Christ. So let's break down that word servant. I'm going to try the Greek pronunciation. I have just tried the Greek pronunciation. <laughs> Hupertes. That's my best. Now, this word is originally translated as like servant or minister. Yeah, servant, translated as servant, right? But if you dig deeper into what that word was used as in its time, it would have been the lead puller of a Roman galley. It does mean minister and servant. But how it was applied in the day, thinking like the Viking ships, it wasn't Viking ships, it was Roman ships, but you've, you've got the, the person at the front and they're beating on the drum, keeping the time. And the person on the very front row, that's who this was. The guy, pull! And the whole ship moves forward. But what you don't realize is he's not the guy on the drum telling everybody to keep time. He's not the guy with the whip keeping people working. He's the first one to pull. That's what it means to be a servant. It doesn't mean that you get to stand up front. It doesn't mean that you get to make a bunch of noise and have everybody look at me, look at me. It doesn't mean that you get to get on to people about what they're not doing right or the issues that they have in their lives. All it means is pull first. Everyone else will follow. And if they follow that person, through his or her example, through his or her lifestyle, through his or her example, the ship's going to start moving. But if that person doesn't do their job, it just spins. Hey, are we supposed to up? Oh, and it goes this way. And then you might start moving forward, or you think you are, but you're really just kind of doing this. And if you keep doing that, you're just going to end up right back where you started. Because it's the job of the servant to pull first. The second word that Paul describes is the word steward. Steward, excuse me, steward is a person. Steward. <laughs> and this word in Greek is oikonomos. I think I did better on that one. Now, this one sounds better, right? This is household manager. This is the man in charge, right? You know, this is the boss ordering materials and telling workers where to go and doing their thing. But that's how we think today. What you don't realize in that time, think of Joseph. 
Yeah, that just means he's the first slave. That's all that means. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, became, that was Hebrew, not Greek, but the oikonomos of the household, the manager. And he had power and position and authority. I'm not saying that he didn't, but it just meant he was the first slave. And what it really boiled down to is he's the one that's going to get in trouble when the rest don't. Think about it, that Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers because they were jealous of what he was going to become, gets into a position and just starts working. Do my job. Just doing my job. Don't mind me. Just right here, doing my job. Oh, I got a promotion. How cool is that? I'm still just a slave, mind you, doing my job like I have a choice. You know, but I'm just going to keep being faithful and keep doing what, oh, wow, how'd I get here? Doesn't matter. I'm going to keep being faithful and keep being this. And he eventually became second to none, but he was still the first slave. So all it took was one accusation. He tried to rape me. Done. <laughs> Board almost executed, only saved by God, thrown into another prison for 10 more years. Yeah all just for being faithful. And somehow we equate faithfulness to success. Huh. wonder what Joseph would say about that. <clears throat> so this word steward implies that a leader, which we all are, don't lose, I'm not talking about pastors here, that all of us as leaders in the church just means that we're the first of slaves. Joseph in Potiphar's house was given that title, but he still remained a slave, just as we remain servants of Jesus Christ. An early church leader, um, Oregon was his name, it was in about the 5th century, he was known for this quote, if Paul can say this of people like himself, Peter and Apollos, how much more will it be true of us? We should be on our guard to make sure we are found to be trustworthy stewards. Paul was afraid that he would break this. And somehow we think it doesn't apply to us. We want to just skip over chapter 4, head over to chapter 13 and work in all the spiritual gifts. Completely ignoring the fact that it's not about being seen, it's not about being heard, it's about pulling first and being the first slave. And we distort the rest of Paul's message by ignoring this. The primary point that Paul is trying to make here is that in God's eyes, we are all equal in ministry. All those people you look up to in church or in your spiritual life, I won't just say church, that's great. I hope they do something for you in your spiritual life. But what you have to realize is in God's eyes, we're equal servants. Now, there's other issues, if you want to call it that, when it comes to pastors and leaders of churches, and, and they're held to a higher standard, and you could get in a lot of trouble doing a job that doesn't belong to you. Let's just put it that way. But in the eyes of God, we are all equal servants. We are all rowers alongside each other. We are all the first slave. We are all creatures, not the creator, and we should never put ourselves or others on a pedestal that only belongs to God. Number three, your ultimate goal is faithfulness. I said this kind of earlier, but now it's a point. Your ultimate goal is faithfulness. 
Let's look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's what's required of us. Faithfulness. So when we are judging our success, that's the only thing we judge by. Were we faithful? Not were we successful? Because we distort what success means. This has to be one of the biggest issues that in the church today that we cannot get over because we have diluted the word and turned success into a positive attribute. That if I'm successful, I'll have money. If I'm successful, I'll have a job. If I'm successful, I'll have nice cars. And in the world's eyes, that is success. But in the eyes of a steward, in the eyes of a servant, the only way to be successful is to be faithful. But the thing that prevents us from doing that is our fear of failing. We're so afraid that our faithfulness will fall short, that we'll screw up, that we'll do something wrong, that I won't be as good as that guy. The reason I put this mentor up on a pedestal is because I'm afraid I can't do that. And as long as he keeps doing it, at least there's somebody out there. And of course, that pedestal falls because we're all human. And that person that you've put there crumbles. And now you're left going, oh, wait a minute. I thought that was success as a Christian. We're not even talking in the world where money was success. We've built up pillars of success in the church. Church attendance. How happy the pastor's marriage is. And all that builds up this pedestal that is built on human values and human beings. And it becomes a human system and it collapses. When we should be building it on one thing and one thing alone, faithfulness. Jesus talks about that he is the vine and we are the branches. So that means we produce fruit. You know, he's the vine, we're attached to the vine, and if we are attached to the vine, we should produce fruit. But again, think of the people of that day, they actually grew things. Anybody grow any vineyards this year? Not really. (laughs) Anybody ever garden before? Some, yeah, a few of us. You know, I did it with my granny when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the generation before me, yeah, you could say that their, their lives were built around farming. Um, does corn grow year-round? Mm, he says not supposed to. Some of that genetically modified stuff. That's crazy. Can you grow tomatoes anytime you want? No. Do you think grapes and olives, the things that grow on branches that Christ was equating us to, you think they are constantly producing fruit? No. So if we base our success on what fruit we're producing and not the faithfulness that we are living in, we'll think we're failing half the year. Where's the fruit? I don't see the fruit. That's that's because I'm I'm building it. That's because I'm developing it. The seed's been planted and there's water and there's sunlight and there's growth. It's germinating. You just can't see it right now. Eventually there will be fruit. But I'm faithful. That was, that's what success is based on, not the fruit that I produce. The fruit's the end. It's the last part. It's the afterthought. It's the shortest thing in the lifespan of a farmer is harvest. It's everything before that that matters. That's faithfulness. And that's what we have to start basing our success on. He wants us to be faithful. He's called us to be faithful. 
If faithfulness is the name of the game, we'll be able to relax and do our jobs, no matter how big or how small, to the best of our ability because Jesus has told us to and for no other reason. Imagine Joseph, I talked about him earlier, if he based his success on the fruits that were in his life. Years in prison. Decades as a slave sold by his brothers. Now eventually we know he was second only to Pharaoh and ruled almost the entire nation and saved thousands of lives through the gift that God had given him. But that's the end of the story if he, in the middle of that prison, went, well, my fruit, I don't see it, so I guess I'm a failure. That's the moment he needed to be faithful. That's exactly when God needed him to dig in and go, wait a minute. I, I didn't put myself in Potiphar's house. I didn't make myself second in command. So I didn't fail. I'm just going to stay faithful to God. And when God presented him that opportunity when he was in prison, he was able to take it. He was still following what God told him to do and being faithful. And God gave him a word in prison, which was a prophecy over a dream. And that made it to the Pharaoh. And then he got forgotten. <laughs> that, was, that was like you'd think, oh yeah, I finally made it. No. The dude who said he was going to bail you out. Hey, when you get out of prison, make sure you mention me. Yeah, he kind of forgot. It was a baker and a wine, uh, a cupbearer, and he helped both of them. One died, one didn't, and the one that didn't was supposed to bail him out of jail, essentially. You know, hey, tell Pharaoh what I did. You think you might have been boasting right there? I, what I did when it was God that gave him that gift to begin with, and he was trying to dig himself out of prison, and he just got forgotten. <laughs> Oops. And then, I want to say it was a decade later, I need to go back and reread that story, you know, now the Pharaoh has a dream and his cupbearer is going, oh, there's this dude that interprets dreams. Where is he at? Oh, yeah, he's in prison. <laughs> we left him locked up when I got out. But through Joseph's faithfulness, he reached success, not the fruit he was seeing at the time. You may feel like you're failing right now, but that does not mean God is through with you. If you are faithfully serving him, he will free you and me and everyone else here to be unimpressed by our own abilities. Because once you're serving God, what you're able to do doesn't matter anymore. Once you're serving his goals and his vision, yours won't get in the way anymore. And then your metric of success won't get in the way of God's metric of success. And what you think doesn't matter right now might be the very kingdom work that God's called you to do. The fruit's just not here yet. You're doing the dirty work. You're digging the hole. You're spreading the seed. You're dragging the water hose up and down the row. <laughs> but the fruit is coming. Time? Anybody? I don't know where my phone is. 40. Ugh. Number four. Forget about, mm, no, just got convicted. Minimize the importance of others' opinions. Minimize the importance of what other people say about you. 
Not saying forget about what other people say about you. That's what I want to say. That's my flesh. That's wrong. That's what I'm working on. Minimize what other people say about you and how it affects you. Just so you know, this isn't me. We're going we're gonna to go to scripture here. <laughs> verse three and four of chapter four. 1 Corinthians four, chapter three, uh, verse three. Chapter four, verse three. Paul introduces three judges here. Let's go over them. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Verse four, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Back up to verse 3. I'm going to leave it up there so I can reference it, but I want, I want you right here. <laughs> um, it is a small thing that I should be judged by you. Notice it is still a thing. Uh, Paul is not saying forget about what others think about you, because if you do that, your ability to minister goes with it. If you don't care what other people think, then you don't care about other people. And how can you minister to other people? But what they think about you, their judgment of you, needs to be a small thing. A very small thing. And everybody's going, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm about to, yeah, just keep moving. But here he introduces three judges. First is a small thing, other people. You know whose opinion should count less than other people? Yours. (laughs) Yours. <laughs> as much as you think, well, I don't care what other people think about me. Okay, that's fine. There's scripture behind that. It shouldn't matter much. But however much what other people think about you matters, consider what you think about you below that. Because Paul says, in fact, I don't even judge myself because what I think about me doesn't matter. So the first judge are the people around us. Paul makes it clear that he does not take the judgment of others too seriously. Why is that? In the world of internet videos, this is pretty easy to describe. You ever, anybody here watch YouTube? Kinda, a little bit. Anybody here got a Facebook account? How about that comment section though? Just, you know, you find a song you like, or an artist that's cool, and you start scrolling, and it's like, oh my God, best musician ever. Oh, they're so great. Demon Spawn. You're like, wait a minute. (laughs) And there's just always somebody down there that's got something negative to say, and there's always somebody down there that's got something positive to say. What that means is if you base everything on what other people think, you're basing it on something that is not a good foundation, and it doesn't really matter because everybody's always going to have something negative, and everyone's going to always have something positive, both of which are probably unearned. You know, oh, greatest musician of our time. It's like, it's like four chords on a piano. I mean, it sounds good, but it, it's just a kid on a laptop making a cool song. Let's be honest here. Or, oh my God, he has totally wrecked music. You have heard of dubstep, right? It can get worse. I think that was a dated reference even for today. Dubstep was like 2012. How old is that, right? You have heard of mumble rap, right? It can get worse. There we go. More, more common. What was that comedian? He says every time he hears a mumble rapper, it sounds like his little kid whining. You know, and he hit me. And it's like, anyway, that was bad. Shouldn't have done that. Secondly, we are judged by ourselves. And Paul places this even below 
people around us. He knows that we can be clouded by pride and by low self-esteem. We can think that we're all that when we're not. And we can think, why am I even alive when we shouldn't? So as unstable as what everybody else says about you is, how much more unstable is what you say about you? Those emotions that just fly off of one end and way off to the other and then back to the other end, that can't matter. If you start judging that too seriously, you'll go insane. But it shouldn't matter what you think about you because there is a third judge, God. This is the only one that matters. He is the only authentic, final judge of our lives. The only things that matter is what he says. Because he knows our circumstances. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our fears. He knows our pride. He knows our arrogance. He knows our low self-esteem. He knows our depression. He can somehow wrap all of that into an understanding of us that we don't even get. And the judgment that he makes is final. And the judgment that he makes is all that matters. And he covers it in grace and he covers it in mercy. But his judgment is the only judgment that matters. God is in the personnel business. Not many business owners in here tonight. We got a younger crowd in here. But many of you have worked at places of employment. And certain people don't belong in certain places. How may I help you? Maybe they don't need to be the greeter. The person that can never even find their phone or keys probably doesn't need to be doing inventory, right? The person that spends more on movies and popcorn every month than they do on food in their house probably shouldn't be over the budget of this company. Does that make sense? God is in the business of people. And he knows everything about us and he knows exactly where we need to belong and only his judgment matters. Minimize what other people think about you. That was number four. Time? One more time. 46, thank you. Number five. It's kind of related to number four, but it's so important I'm going to put it by itself. The ultimate judgment and correction belongs to God. The ultimate judgment and correction belongs to God. And this is what Paul had figured out. And this is what we have to do. We have to understand what we need, rather, is to faithfully follow God and leave the judgment to him. That does not mean we're not accountable to others and that we're not accountable to ourselves and friends and loved ones and spouses, but the final judgment belongs to God. He's even given us the Holy Spirit to help judge ourselves. It's called a conscience in in the secular world. (laughs) It's called the Holy Spirit when you're a Christian. He's even given you that so that you can keep yourself in check, but the final judgment only belongs to him. Paul brings on some observations with this. Let's go to verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? 
And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed received it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? This is weird. Let's unpack this. I'm going to use football. There's, there's some boasting in sports, right? You've got the end zone dances. You've got the interception celebrations. You've got all the kind of stuff. And we've all seen, if you watch football, a defender, after swatting down a pass, do something. Nuh-uh. Or, oh, yeah. Or he'll do something about, oh, look at me. You know what the worst one is? When he gets burnt on a route, he's 10 steps behind the dude. The dude just drops the ball. And somehow the defender's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, not over here. And you're just like, dude, you didn't do anything. Like, go get back in the huddle. You got burnt. (laughs) You did nothing. (laughs) That's what this verse is saying. And what you do have, what do you have, rather, that God hasn't given to you? Nothing. Everything you have, God has given to you. So if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you didn't get it as a gift? Why do you somehow go, look at me, look what I got. You know, look at my accomplishment when it was just a gift. And someone with the right lens is going, you didn't do anything. You deserve death. You deserve judgment. You deserve condemnation. Why are you celebrating? That's what Paul is warning us of here. That we have to get rid of our self-pride and our arrogance and our boasting. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, not us. Now, it's okay to be proud of who you are. It's okay to be proud to be an American. Proud to be white. Proud to be black. Proud to be a Democrat. Proud to be a Republican. Proud to be this, proud to be that, proud to be a Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. But as soon as that pride, that boastfulness, that arrogance makes itself higher than God, I don't care what it is that you're boasting in, and you have a problem. I'm proud to be a father. But that doesn't mean I'm somehow putting that part of my life above being a servant. And if being a servant and a steward goes against what I think it means to be a father, then being a father doesn't matter anymore. I'm proud to live in the United States of America. But if being an American starts to differ from what it means to be a follower of Christ, that doesn't matter anymore. It was temporary anyway. What the de- that definition changes by the day what it means to be this or what it means to be that. But this definition of being a follower of a Christ should not change. Next, in verse 12, let's go to 12, Paul compares that drugged state of, look at me, I'm so cool, without really being that. He compares that to the reality of what it means to be a servant leader. So remember, the Corinthians were all super spiritual and look how good we are and look how better we are than everybody else. And then Paul comes in with saying, and we, servant leaders, work with our own hands. Being reviled, being hated, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Let's go to 13. Being defamed, we entreat. 
we have made as the filth of the world the offscouring of all things until now. We are the bottom of the bottom of the bottom when it comes to what we are in this world. That's the only way we can be the top of the kingdom of God. Paul here, this would have been a thing they knew in their days. Again, church history and, and like world history happened at the same time. We have this idea that like the Persian Empire and the Bible stories are separate. But in Paul's time, Roman generals would have been coming back from conquering all the different nations that Rome conquered all the way up into what now is called England. And a general would come back to a parade. And there was two parts of the parade. The army coming back with the general at the head, taking all the glory, taking all the praise. Look at me, look at me. And at the very end, past the uh, porta potties, let's put it that way, were the captured slaves. At the very, very, very back. And this reference here, we have been made as the filth of the world, was the filth of the Roman world that was coming back with the conquering armies. The bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And that is what we as servant leaders have been made. It's not glamorous. But in the kingdom of God, we're at the top. And that's what we have to seek after. And that's what faithfulness can bring. You see, a servant leader doesn't judge their success based on the applause of a crowd. Because the crowd's perception is based on worldly, natural, fleshly tendencies, not the values of eternity. Not the values of the kingdom of God. The last thing that Paul does, and I think this is kind of the most important thing, is that he reminds us that all of this is done in love. He compares it uh, as, a, as a parent to their children. And he says, No one loves you as much as I love you. And therefore, no one will speak to you as honestly as I speak to you. Don't be arrogant. Remember, even though... Trying, yeah, I'm still in the verse, right? <laughs> Remember, even though on this world's value system, I don't amount to much as a leader... I have been given pastoral authority for you by God. Hear my rebuke. Wake up to your mistakes. Repent of those things that divide and those things of the flesh that are destroying your unity in Christ Jesus and your spiritual maturity. Paul did all of this out of love. When someone tells you about yourself, the stuff you don't want to hear, only means one of two things. They're your enemy or they love you more than anybody else. Those are two of the only people that really can tell you the truth about yourself. And as friends, as a loving parent, as Paul was, all of this should be received in love. We have to hear this correction of Scripture and understand that the only reason God is giving it to us is because he's doing it out of love. Paul did this over and over again. He did it to Timothy. If you go through First and Second Timothy, he brings some pretty strong rebuke onto Timothy. And in today, 
that, that rebuke kind of carries over to men in general, like because he was targeting male leaders in the church, kind of when he wrote towards Timothy. But he does it out of love. When we encounter scripture, when we encounter difficult truths in the Bible, it is all out of love so that we can be the best us for the kingdom of God. Not for us. <laughs> Remember, seek this first and the rest will come. You can have a successful life. There's nothing wrong with that. You can have the worldly things that you think you need. That can come, but that cannot be the goal. And if it doesn't come, it doesn't come because it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The kingdom of God and the faithfulness to that kingdom is all that matters. Christ's own life is the model of a perfect servant leader. I'm closing. What time is it? Thank you. And despite our fallen nature, we are called to imitate Christ. How difficult that must be to read. We kind of like skip over that. Christians, to be like Christ. And we're called to be like Christ. And realize that God put that word there for us, understanding how impossible that was. And how big of a task that could possibly be. Imagine having to imitate a person today. Yo, go be like Bill Gates. Got it? Go work as hard as someone like Elon Musk. Go train as hard as LeBron James. Just go imitate that person. Go do what they do. Are you crazy? I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the physical ability. I don't have the emotional ability. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the whatever you think you're lacking to imitate that human being. It's going to be dead in 50 years and not even matter anymore in 100. It's going to be irrelevant. But we've been called to imitate Christ, the perfect man who was and is and is to come and will always be relevant and always be important for the next however long this planet lasts. That's who we're called to imitate. And we treat it as if, okay, sure, yeah, got it. When if we realized how difficult that would be, it would be easier to let go of ourselves. Yeah, because if I told you to go train like LeBron, it's going to be all about you. How many this can I do? How far can I run? How much can I lift? You know, all that is going to be about your own physical ability. If I told you to go develop a space program like Elon Musk, it would all be about you. How much can I learn? How much can I invent? How much money can I get to fund all this stuff? But if you realize how much bigger Christ is, you realize you don't have a chance. And the only way to succeed is to quit and give it all over to God. And that through him, you will be an imitator of Christ. The best way to apply this teaching is to realize that the servant leader is not against power, but against the corruption of power. The servant leader does not find their identity in the values of this world, but in faithful service of the one who created this world. The servant leader comes with no authority of their own, but comes with all authority of God, the creator, God of redemption, the God of heaven and earth. And that's what we should be seeking after. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you do to, uh, for us, Father. We thank you for this ability that you have given us to seek after your will in our lives, God. We pray that each and every one of us can develop that humility and 
get rid of the boasting and start focusing on what you say about us, not what we say about us, not what others say about us, to focus on faithfulness as the only thing we're trying to achieve, not success, not fruit, but faith. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.